Hello, and welcome to Episode 7 of Foreign Correspondence, a podcast about journalists. I'm Jake Spring, a foreign correspondent with more than eight years' experience in Brazil and China. This week, we'll be talking to my friend Ko Guiqing, an investigative reporter with Reuters News in New York City. Guiqing was my co-worker when I first started at Reuters in Beijing. I sat next to her, and she really showed me the ropes. She started down the investigative leg of her career with one foot out the door of the Beijing Bureau and has gone on to do some great stories in the U.S. This interview is special for a few reasons. First, like in the last episode with Meredith Clark, I spoke to Guiqing in person when I was in New York City in June. We spoke in her apartment in Hell's Kitchen, so please pardon the ambulance noises. It's part of that Manhattan ambiance. Second, I did this interview while pretty hungover. I tend to burn the candle at both ends on the rare occasions when I go to New York, since I have so many friends there. So in this case, I had been out doing karaoke with friends till about 5 a.m. the previous morning. That accounts for how low I'm speaking in this episode, but I don't think it affects my interviews. I find if I'm hungover, I can often be more to the point in interviews. But more than anything, this interview is special because of Guiqing. She does not fuck around. We get right into it on the nitty-gritty of dealing with tough source situations and go on to discuss some of her high-pressure investigative trips. Guiqing is something of a news hitman. An editor calls her up, says, I've got a job for you in this other city or country, and she flies there and fucking kills it. Before we get into it with Guiqing, just a reminder to leave a review for us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. That would be a big help. And let me know what you think more directly on Twitter at at foreignpod or send me an email at jake.spring at gmail.com. And to that end, I'd like to also shout out Kevin in Verona, Wisconsin, who sent in the podcast's very first piece of listener mail. Thanks so much for listening to the show, Kevin, and for all the great feedback. And now, without further ado, here's my conversation with Ko Guiqing of Reuters News. So I guess just to warm up, maybe tell me a bit about your last week at work, what kind of week you've had. First, I'll say we're sitting in your apartment in Hell's Kitchen in New York. Yeah. Um, talking to Guiqing Ko. Or do you prefer Ko Guiqing? It is Ko Guiqing, yeah. Okay, okay. Sorry, I should, <laughs> I should know that. It's been a while. When That's we, okay. When we worked together and like you had to constantly write other people's names on the credit lines, I would remember, but it's been too long. It's okay. People butcher my names in like multiple ways. Yeah, every single imagine. day. You're yeah. going out to Long Island, like talking to people out there. <laughs> no, not even people on Long Island. People are not on newsroom, but you know, I'm not really? giving them like, uh, a hard time. But yes, <laughs> fair enough. Like you know, I would put you under like a Russian name or yeah. I yeah. guess that's true. But anyway, yeah. What uh, has it been? A busy week. What have you been up to? It was a uh, it was a very long week. I have been so <laughs> I've I've been working on a story with three other colleagues in London and in Poland and we're trying to bring the story we're trying to finish it up but you know like relationship with sources is always sticky and I have I'm now in a situation that I have to deal with where um, a source could get into a lot of trouble for things that were said to me and the source wants to rescind what was said and I have to decide how I want to deal with it. Mm -hmm. So that's one. And so, you know, I had to deal with my colleague who was not happy uh, about the outcome and who spent like a good 20 minutes yelling at me at uh, 7.30 like one morning this week. I forget when. So that was that. Then I am... I'm spending more time or we're trying to do 
few more stories on white collar crime here in New York. So I spend my time, you know, running around, running between different courtrooms, trying to get to know prosecutors and yeah, and, and that's been interesting because I'm trying to look into another story, but it takes time for people to tell me what I want to know. Mm-hmm. It takes time. So that was that. And yeah, I yeah, it's been a really long week. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, sounds like it. Yeah, I, I've only had a source like really do a hard, like I want to rescind everything once. And so what I did is I went to Ben Lim in the office and I'm like, Ben Lim, what should I do? And he's like, eh, if you think he's not actually... Because in that situation, I was like, nobody's going to care. He's just like, it was a bit... There were new bosses, and he worked for the Chinese government. And his old boss had said, sure, go talk to this journalist. And his new boss was like, what the hell? Like, don't talk to the medium. But I ended up using it. Everything turned out fine. Yeah. Um, I think for me, it's more, uh, in my situation, it's more an ethical rather than a legal issue. Oh, okay. And I need to figure out if I can live with myself in the worst case scenario. And I don't think I can. Which so would be then, like the person getting fired or the person like going to jail? Because <laughs> there's a big difference there. Going to jail. Oh, damn. Okay. So then, yeah. I mean, I, I, I'm still thinking about it. There really are no easy answers. And and yeah, I, I think the funny thing was I spent, you know, several days of this week being rather stressed out about it because, you know, I didn't really know. I couldn't see a, a way forward. And after the very long like week on Friday, I um, was walking, you know, to my dinner. I'm like, I was walking to a restaurant for my dinner. And, and in that 15 minutes when I was like just mulling it over, I came up with a semi-solution, mm-hmm. which, you know, was, I think, decent, but... Like I said, at the end of the day, I think this is more than an ethical issue. Do you know, how much should we care about our sources? Like, if someone tells you something that could place them in a lot of danger, but they did say what they said, you know, should you run with it anyway? Knowing that they might have put themselves in harm's way, or should you consider it for a moment and then say, all right, maybe this is not crucial. You know, maybe I could write 80% of the story Mm-hmm. And not use the remaining twenty or ten percent because the risk rewards are just not worth it. I I don't have an answer. I I'm still figuring it out. But yeah. Oh well. Well, <laughs> it sounds tough. And yeah, maybe I won't ask more <laughs> about that <laughs> solution. Um, so okay, great. Well, mm. that was a kind of heavy way to start, but uh, it's interesting. I guess I usually start with you know going over the person's background. So uh, let's start with where are you from? I'm from Singapore. I grew up born and bred and grew up and studied and did everything in Singapore until I joined Reuters and like spent two years in Singapore, then moved to Sydney for two years, went to Beijing for five, and then I'm now in New York for three and a half years or so. And just briefly, I mean, what is, was it like growing up in Singapore? It's it's good. I mean, it's, it's very safe. It's a uh, very protected environment. It's a small country. When you're a child, all your physical requirements usually are met in Singapore because, you know, it's so small, it's so safe. There is not a lot of poverty. So it's good in that respect. But again, you you don't know what you don't know as a kid. I I think as I got older and I became more curious about the world outside Singapore, that was when staying in Singapore became a little less satisfying. But as a child, it was, I didn't, it was not like I wanted to be somewhere else now mm-hmm. so sure sure i mean yeah when you're a kid i grew up in a small town in the midwest would i ever want to live there no right but, like i was a kid what did i know 
<laughs> yeah, no, <laughs> I... Good as any place. Right. You know, I had a lot of fun in school. And um, we were talking about... We had lunch right before this, and we were talking about crazy rich Asians. Oh, it is... It's, it's not like that, just for... <laughs> People no, I did not grow up in a wealthy family. <laughs> um, in fact, there was a moment, there were a few years in my life where and after my parents divorced, I think we, looking back, I'm pretty sure we was living below the poverty line. Mm-hmm. So no, that that entire circle is something that's unfamiliar to me. I mean, I, I, I know it as in I can, you know, I have friends who might have moved in those circles, but I do not have any close friends who, like, whose parents were that wealthy. Mm-hmm. Um, and for the record, I have not seen Crazy Rich Asians, and I do not <laughs> so, plan to watch Crazy Rich Asians. So. so I guess you can't really testify to whether it's accurate or not. No. <laughs> um, okay. And I normally ask what mm. people's parents did. Sure. My mom was a, my mom's was a housewife, and my dad was an aircraft technician. So he repaired, I think he repaired like, like military planes for the Singapore government. Okay, yeah. I, I think so. you telling me that yeah. years ago now that I think about it. Yeah. Let's see. When did you first become interested in journalism? Was it when you were a kid? It was uh, by complete accident. I think I'm, when I was growing up, I was interested in many, many things. Mm-hmm. I wanted to be an architect. I wanted to be a teacher. I wanted to be a lawyer. I wanted to be a building developer. I, I wanted to be many things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I kind of fell into journalism when I was in college. And actually, the, the way I picked my college was it was a terrible way. Um, <laughs> it was absolutely unscientific and not thoughtful. I got to it by process of elimination. What I will not it? recommend it to anyone. <laughs> I, I went to um, Nanyang Technological University. No, I mean the school itself was fine. It was just the way I picked my choice of studies. It was it was childish and it was immature and it was terrible. Frankly, it was just terrible. It was like I did well in my A levels and I spent all of twenty minutes deciding what I wanted to study in college and I literally just like flipped through the university brochure and I, I guess. At that point in time, I I, I kind of encapsulated the stereotype of a good student in that I just, you know, I was complacent. I just thought, like, all right, I did well in my exams, so it doesn't matter what choice of studies I pick. I'm just do uh, something and I'll be fine because uh-huh. I'm going to university and, you know, I'll have a decent job and, you know, I'll be able to, like, support myself. So it doesn't really matter what I'm going to study. So I, I think I just sat on the sofa and decided what I was going to study in literally 15 to 20 minutes where I, I went through the brochure and I just eliminated everything that I saw on a whim. I was like, I don't want to be a lawyer out. I don't want to be an accountant out. I don't want to be a businessman out. So, you know, the only thing that was left was school of communications. And I thought, oh, okay, you know, like don't really know what this entails. And, you know, it's a good school. It's hard to get in. That must mean it's something great. Uh-huh. So I'll go for it. Yeah. Oh. So it was a terrible, terrible way of picking what you want to study. But anyway, the long story short was then I got involved with the campus newspaper and I liked it a lot. And that was how it all started. Okay. Were the classes, I mean, communications can mean a lot of things. Were the classes mostly journalism or were they? It was a mix. There was TV or drama production, there was yeah. communications research, there was advertising, and there was journalism. So, mm-hmm. And out of curiosity, what did a lot of people you studied with go on to do? Actually, not many, as you can imagine, not many people are left in journalism. There right. are, 
I think it's at most a handful of them. Everyone else moved on to do something else. I either become lawyers or become communications people like public relations or doing some kind of research work. In banking and finance, there's a whole bunch, but not many people um, have remained journalists. Okay, yeah, sounds not that different from the U.S. then. Like, I feel like, yeah, most journalism graduates do not actually become journalists. No. They do something else. What did your parents think of you choosing so arbitrarily? They never knew. <laughs> <laughs> I think my mom had other things to worry about at that point in, in time. Uh-huh. Uh, looking back, I did ask her occasionally. I said, why don't you tell me to be like study something else? <laughs> and she said, I did. I told you to be... Be a lawyer. You said you were not interested, so I left it as that. <laughs> um, so yeah, I don't. I don't think till this day my parents really understand what I do. Okay, sure. So uh, especially when I write uh, about companies or finance, they definitely don't understand that. And sure. yeah, so it's fine. Like my parents, my mom has never asked me like, "Oh, show me your work." Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I don't mind it either. I'm not. I don't necessarily want people to read what I write. To be honest, I mean, okay, <laughs> people I know. I, I'll take that You're back. Too but. <laughs> Okay, sure, sure. Yeah. Yeah, I guess I I don't know how much my folks look at what I do. I know they look me up occasionally, but... Yeah. I mean, there was definitely a time in China where I was writing stuff that could not have possibly interested them about right. like the Chinese economy and stuff like that. And at Reuters, we write so much, I feel like a small percentage of that is like very general interest of stuff I write, at least. Okay, cool. And so you go to college, you graduate, and... And what happens? So I did a four years bachelor's and part of the program was I think in my third year, I had to do a six month internship with mm-hmm. a company and I actually, I got an internship with Reuters and that was how it all started. Sure. So I was writing about the stock market for six months. I was doing this thing called hot stocks. <laughs> then I graduated and they sort of offered me a contract position. Uh-huh. And that was how it all started. So. Like for a few months? I think at that point it was for a year. I don't remember. Okay. And then some position, some full-time position opened up in the office and I applied for it and I got it. Actually much to the surprise of my boss at that time. She's <laughs> <laughs> pretty funny, but yeah. Huh. And this was reporting in the Singapore Bureau on Singapore? Yes. Or- it was like, I forget what, I, yeah, I think it was like money, politics, and general news correspondence. So I wrote about the Singapore economy and the political scene in Singapore, which was at a point in time was mainly about covering cases where the Singapore government was suing the opposition, like members of the opposition political party. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. And how, how how does that compare out of curiosity with well, like your later work in other countries? Like I've never worked for Reuters in the U.S., so I can't, mm. I don't really know what it's like reporting on your own country. I don't feel a difference in the way I speak to people. I mean, well, yes and no. I, I I remember there was one conversation where I was at that point in Singapore. I think the police was they were monitoring a member of the opposition, a politician from the opposition camp, and I had showed up and I was going to write a story about that. And this plain plain clothes policeman approached me and he, you know, started asking me like what I was doing there, why I was there. And I introduced myself and I said, oh, I'm a journalist, I'm with Reuters. And then he looked at me and he said, why are you guys or why is the Western media always so opposed to Singapore? Mm -hmm. And I don't know if I explained it to him, but that always struck me because that was how they saw the role of 
non-Singaporean media, which is not unlike the way the Chinese government sees the role of non-Chinese right. media, which is that we exist just so to get under their skin. And <laughs> that's not really, I, I don't think that's why we exist. I, we we write what we see. But the long story short is I don't see a difference in reporting about stories in your home country or elsewhere. I just think that when you're in your home country and you sometimes get questions from sources who don't understand what you do and they sort of imply that you should know better <laughs> because you're at home and you you know how it works. Mm-hmm. And yeah, Whereas that gets interesting. Yeah, can get a pass sometimes. Oh, right, because people just assume that you don't know anything. Right, yeah. So, you know, it, it, it could work for you or it could work against you depending on how you respond, I guess. Sure. Sure. That's interesting. I didn't know you had started off more of a generalist and then... Oh, yeah, I did. Um, actually, those were fun days in that I, I do miss working in a small office because you did everything. And mm-hmm. I think in some ways I consider China, the Beijing Bureau, where we work together to be, you know, it's not a small office, but it was still an office where you did everything, right? right in yeah. a way, because when you were on a weekend shift, if a plane went down, you were the one covering it. I don't get that kind of opportunities here in New York, and I do miss that. Uh-huh. Because uh-huh. New York is so big and everyone is very focused on the niche area of coverage. Uh, yeah, I don't really understand how, like, people have explained it to me, like, how the general news team in the U.S. works, but it just seems I can't really get my head around how it's structured. There are people in random cities all over and stringers and who knows. In Beijing, yeah, I remember my old boss, uh, Kazu, saying he liked working on the weekend shift, which is ridiculous because then, like, if something big happens, he would be the guy and, you know, he would get to write the general whatever story. Yeah, I think, um, yeah, Kazu is a newsman, right? He misses, yeah. like, he likes writing about stories and, yeah. Right. Let's see. And so you gave the brief rundown at the beginning. Let's see if I remember this right. Uh, you, you then go from Singapore to Australia? Is to Sydney, right? yeah, for two years. Okay. How'd that happen? Were you angling to get out of Singapore or? I was. I was. <laughs> It was a pretty funny story. So after I graduated, I joined Reuters in 2006. And I think by the end of 2007, as the financial crisis was happening, Reuters was sold to Thomson, right? Oh, okay. So you worked in the pre-Thomson days. Yes. And then suddenly I lost my job in the sense that they were trying to consolidate the reporters from Reuters and Thomson. And they wanted to see like who had overlapping responsibilities and those who did were made to reapply for their jobs. And I was found to be one of them. So I went from like, you know, having a job and being a full-time employee to suddenly realizing that I had to compete with my Thomson counterpart and and get a job, like like basically prove my right to stay in my job. And I didn't even realize Thomson had its own. Yeah, they had a small office. They had a team of about four. And, uh, you know, I was in like my early 20s. I was shocked. I was scared. I thought I was going to lose my job. But anyway, long story short was then, you know, I did an interview with our editor and he liked the way I interviewed. He thought I was full of enthusiasm and... So after that, he called me and he said, what do you want to do? And I was like, I really want to leave Singapore. And he was like, why are you in such a hurry? Hmm. And I just said, because, you know, like, I just want to get out. I want to see what's out there. And I indicated to him very early on that I wanted to be in this, like, big, crazy emerging market. I wanted to go to India. Uh I wanted to go to China. I wanted to go to the place where there was chaos and where there were things happening. Was this as arbitrary as your school decision or what? Uh, It was slightly less arbitrary than my school decision. (laughs) I knew I didn't want to go to, like, you know, a developed country. Sure. 
but they didn't i guess at the end of the day they like Reuters didn't trust me to not be a liability if i went to china <laughs> because they thought china was a huge story so they made mm-hmm. me apply for the australian job thinking that it would just be a way for me to practice my interviewing skills and also because they they didn't want to send me to china and of course i applied and then it turns out i got the job mm-hmm. <laughs> at that point in time i thought it was just unbecoming to say you want to leave <laughs> apply for a job get it and then don't go sure. so i went and looking back i had a very bad attitude because i i went and i was so bent on leaving right from the start right from the start because you know i wanted to be in a crazy place and like mm-hmm. australia was not a crazy place so i was there for two years i covered the central bank and the economy and the currency market i wrote four currency mark like reports every day oh, back um, in those days. yeah oh. <laughs> it was it was very good training i still miss my boss from those days he taught me so very much yeah and then you know after australia i went to china and i got everything i asked for there was all there was chaos there was craziness there was you know it was all very exciting and then i realized like what i was missing out in australia (laughs) (laughs) sure so that's lesson learned they came around to sending you to china very quickly i guess i mean well i mean it took me two years but yes i guess when they decided that i was in a complete knobhead they (laughs) (laughs) they thought like all right she's not gonna go to china and be a complete screw up Sure. <laughs> so, and you were you did the economy the whole time you were there, right? In, in China? China, yeah, I did. Mm-hmm. So, what what year did you show up? What was going on then? I showed up at the end of 2010. Okay. And I left at the end of 2015, so it was a good five years. Okay. Post Olympics. Post Olympics, yeah. A slightly less hopeful time. Yeah, I mean, the economy slowing down. It was still, that. yeah, I think it was steadying at that point. I think it hadn't slowed then. It was still like eight point five nine percent growth. Out of curiosity, did mm-hmm. you prefer doing look at China? It's growing so fast type stories, or did you prefer doing the stories about like look at the slowdown? I feel like there was, I don't know, there was a point where it's like it was all good economic news for like decades, and then it's kind of switched to. I mean, at least whether or not, I, I think the economy was still going great there, but ed- editors always push for those types of stories. Oh, it's going to be the 6% risks. instead of 8% and we'll go go out to talk to the person on the street and find out how it's affecting them. And people are like, eh, it's still kind of going pretty okay. Yeah. <laughs> I don't I don't think I have a preference. Oh, that may not be true. I feel like as journalists, you know, we sometimes have a bias for the negative stories because that is mm-hmm. invariably the more interesting story. and. It reflects badly on our profession, but you know, there's, that's just our inclination, right? It's like the whole idea of Mark Racker. You were like digging up, you know, oh, bad yeah, stuff. Yeah. But yeah, I, I don't think I have. Maybe, maybe like a part of me is more interested in the negative stories, but I don't think I caught the booming China, like you know, because I think that was like in the early 2000s, yes, that's right, yeah. leading up to the Olympics, which is like the big coming out party. So I wouldn't know mm-hmm. what it was like because I missed out on that. Sure. And this was when I met you because I came into the trainee program in, I guess it was 2014. Yeah. Trainee, despite it being like my third job. But it was good. And they put me immediately on economy and finance. I can't remember the order. And I was reporting to Pete Sweeney, who I used to work with at China Economic Review. It was very funny. Right. And But he was based in Shanghai, so they sat me right next to you. So you were the person I was turning to constantly being like, how does anything work? Where's the bathroom? <laughs> like... Yeah, I didn't. I really didn't know what I was doing when I first showed up, especially working at a wire service. But I guess 
guess at that point you were already, yeah, four years deep in your five years. Yeah. And I think you were already chained to the slot at that point. I'm trying to remember. Yes. The slot is the part of the office where all the monitoring screens are, where they send out the most snaps. It's like a, I don't know. What's a snap? What's How would you snap? describe a, a snap? A snap is an all capitals headline. Alert the media. The China's central bank cuts rates to X point X percent. Yeah. And the slot was also crazy, like just showing up and like, they'd be like, it was not that well organized back then. They like mm. realized they needed to organize it better. But like, I would end up watching the slot for like hours and I'm like, I just showed up. Like, I don't know what I'm doing. Oh no. And you'd watch those four computer screens and every time one website updates, it jumps to the top and you read it. Yes. And so you're, it's just like a bunch of Chinese right to your face. And luckily I'd just gotten done with an intensive Chinese program. I feel like if I hadn't done that, I would have just lost my shit. But, but I, I guess what I, I'm curious about, about China is if you had to highlight one story you did there that you're really proud of or something like that. I, I mean, I honestly don't really remember what you were doing there. Like, I remember when news would break. Breaking news stories, I remember mostly dealing yeah. with you. Otherwise, I can't remember. Did you do many features? Did you... I did a few. I don't know. I feel like I'm always unhappy with my stories by the time they <laughs> leave, like by the time they're out. I mean, I wouldn't say I'm unhappy, but I'm not excited. I don't think the world of them, like, they're okay. Mm-hmm. They're stories, right? There's one saying, which is, you're you're only as good as your next story. Your next story, not yeah, your exactly. last story. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Okay. So it's like, you're 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 in a perpetual like you're perpetually running all the time once your story's out it's like what's coming up next what are you doing next i would say more of like memorable for me stories that i walked on that took a lot of time and like were painful in various ways (laughs) i guess would be i i worked on a on a special report which in reuters jargon just means like a very long story that was about like these radio networks that the chinese government was was buying around the world and yeah that was um that was a good exercise i learned a lot I had other things to do, so that whole act, like reporting exercise took close to two years. I worked with many, many colleagues around the world, and many of them were so very generous and helpful and kind in, in helping us get the story over the line, and I'm always, always grateful for that. I think the, the reporting credit on that story was ridiculous. or something like 15 names on it. Wow. <laughs> and, you know, when before we ran the story, I did a fact-checking exercise with two editors, and we spent eight hours on the phone, wow. like, literally eight hours on the phone, just checking every single line. So that was that was memorable oh but yeah, yeah i remember that now it's only a few years ago but it seems like so long ago yeah yeah how did you so that was a story about chinese interests or the chinese government was it the government directly buying up small radio stations yeah it was uh it was i don't know if we ever reported this but it was basically like china radio international getting funds from the government to buy little radio stations around the world in australia and eastern europe and oh well they don't necessarily buy stakes like in some place in some countries they bought stakes in the radio stations in some countries they bought the entire station whereas in, you know in other countries they would just buy airtime mm-hmm. but it was in australia it was in eastern europe it was in the u.s it was in parts of asia so actually i think we saw signs in africa but we never got around to really proving those so we left africa out but yeah so that was the story it was just like how this chinese state radios like you know network was trying to extend china's like soft power reach and trying to get to a global audience where they would sell stories about china that they thought were flattering to the country to an international audience and that was i remember was a huge story it like spawned 
congressional congressional investigation and things like that, didn't it? It I'm did, sure but they, they never went anywhere. Yeah, exactly. Mm, okay, that sounds like... <laughs> it was exciting was... <laughs> when they announced the investigation and then I think it kind of like patched it out. Yeah, but yeah, that was a huge story. How did you... Because I'm trying to think back mm. and... I seem to remember, I remember you were very, you had a lot of angst about this story and what was going on with it, but it wasn't related directly to what you were doing in economy. So I didn't really know what you were doing and I felt like you didn't really like to broadcast you were doing it. So I was... It was like a site project. How did you even get turned on to that? Did you get a tip off or... Yeah, someone just told me about this and... You know, the first time I heard it, I was like, holy shit. And to be honest, like looking back, I was a bad journalist. I sat on it for a couple of months because I was like, I don't know how I'm going to do with that. I just had this crazy conversation. I don't know what to do with Uh it. Then I met one of our editors. We were were attending a conference in another Chinese city that was not in Beijing, that was not Beijing. And after the conference, we both agreed to meet up for a drink. Mm -hmm. And we were both just, you know, like talking and, you know, sharing ideas for stories. And then I I just said to him, I was like, you won't believe this conversation that I had with this person who told me all these things. So I, I, you know, I repeated the conversation. He looked at me and he was like, holy shit. He's like, you got to work on that story. That's the kind of story that makes you fall off your chair. It's like, it's a holy shit story. And that was the first time someone put a thought in my head that said, you've got to try and chase this down. And that was how it all started. Literally, I had this crazy conversation. I sat on it for two months. Then I had a conversation with an editor where I told him what happened. And he said, chase it, like stick with it and chase it because it's holy Mm -hmm. shit. (laughs) It took you, what, two years? to? Well, I mean, it took me two years because there were... It could have been faster. I think we could have done it in slightly over a year. But there were all sorts of delays because people were away. You know, I had two other jobs at that time. Yeah, there was just all sorts of delays. Sure. Yeah. So then you get that story out Mm -hmm. and you left pretty soon after that or was, were you already gone by the time it came out no i think i left like the day or the day after the story hit <laughs> that was like good, literally good the timing. last thing i had on my plate <laughs> i remember when the story ran but at that time i was i had given up my basing apartment i was staying at the westin i think on financial street uh-huh. and oh, yeah. i think the story ran the morning of New York, so it was nighttime in Beijing. Uh-huh. And I remember I was so nervous because I was like, oh God, do we check everything? Is everything yeah, okay? Man. Do we have any factual errors? And I remember after the story ran, the editor called me and he was like, how are you feeling? And I was like, oh God, I'm shitting myself. This is normal. He was, and he laughed and he was like, it's fine. It's perfectly good. It just means you care. Because uh-huh. I was I was just like pacing the room and I was like, oh my God, what if we got this wrong? Like, what if we, you know, misinterpreted something and this story is not what we think it is. So. Uh-huh. Yeah. And uh, how was the reaction? It was good. I mean, it was it was fine. Like some people thought it was a good story, so it was fine. Sure, I remember the congressional thing, but I don't remember if it caused any sort of shitstorm with uh, no, Chinese mean, authorities or something. No, I don't, I don't think, think the, I heard I don't about think the government. All. I don't think the government cared, or they didn't show any real reaction. I, I don't. I mean, I think Global Times, I ran, had a piece that like rebutted what we said. I think there were a couple of those, but nothing beyond that. Huh. Okay, and. 
so you dropped this huge story. I mean, it wasn't that big, but like, have, it was, it was, yeah. Yeah, you should, probably should have waited to negotiate your New York contract after that. But you, it was already time to go. And well, you've already had several different beats, I guess I would say, in New York, right? You've had at least three different things you've done. You first showed up, and you were doing private equity, right? Yeah, I'm not a good deals reporter. <laughs> You found out when you I found like, out. Okay. I'm just not good at it. Don't have the temperament for it. It's terrible at it. Actually, I think I owe, you know, the deals editor a big apology <laughs> for never doing the job that he hired me to do, never uh-huh. doing it well. So uh, how long did you do that for? I think about a year for a year. Okay. You transitioned to, was it already, was the next thing you reported on China stuff? Like China? Yeah, it's just a lot of the random China stories came to me because we, at that point, didn't have many Chinese speakers in this part of the world. Uh-huh. So, you know, I worked on a story about people breaking money laundering rules in casinos, worked uh-huh. on stories about how the Chinese cabinet was, you know, investing in U.S. tech companies through two or three other intermediary companies that didn't necessarily necessarily that did not openly declare their links to the state okay. i mean they were like there was just an assortment of stuff you did a lot of hna reporting for a second yeah for a while i did i wish more came out of that but <laughs> <laughs> i guess before you could find the dirt the company was already in trouble with the authorities right in china i don't remember the specifics So is that what you're doing now still ostensibly or did you formally change to do more investigative stuff or it just kind of happened or? Yeah, I am trying to do more investigative stories. I'm also spending more time on white collar stories. So is that like, but did they say, okay, you're, you've done enough China influence in the U.S. stories. We'll move you to doing more white collar stuff or is it like, what is your official job, right? (laughs) I I don't know that I have an official (laughs) job and I think that's a good and bad thing i'm like kind of a free agent i just like okay i'm looking for good stories mm-hmm. wherever i find them if i can bring them home fantastic i think i i have editors who are good in that they said don't pigeon your hold yourself to just china stories which is brilliant because uh-huh. while it's good covering china from the u.s the best place to cover china is from china right yeah. <laughs> so you know it's not yeah i i i love the fact that i'm no longer typecast uh-huh. or at least i hope i'm not I don't think so. So, yeah, there were a couple of specific stories I wanted to ask you about. Mm. One was the education-related one that I think, like, Alex Harney was working on in China as well. Like, it, it ended oh, up right, having like a lot Chinese, of... Chinese students cheating on their... Was it SATs? No, not SATs, but their college exams. Yeah. There were Yeah, there was a whole series. And, yeah, um... I just helped out with one, but yes. Okay. But you were the one who was in the U.S., so they sent you, like, they weren't going to send Alex from Shanghai to go to Iowa. Eventually, they did. Oh, really? She went separately. Yes, so I went to Iowa to... What's the name? Iowa City. University of Iowa? I think so. Okay. (laughs) I forget now. Sure. When was that? Oof, 2016, maybe? I forget. But, I mean, how did they rope you into that story? I'm curious how reporting that out went. Like, they approached you already with, like, we want you to go to Iowa? Or did you get involved before that? No, they literally approached me the day I left. (laughs) 
And they said, "We need you to do something for us. <laughs> We need you to go to Iowa, spend two or three days, and try to find students who have cheated and get them to talk to us." And they were like, "No pressure. <laughs> just do your like, just do what you can." Wow. And that was a, a. I felt a lot of pressure. Yeah, no kidding. Because I was dealing with two very senior editors, and like, look, in the end, I got lucky, right?、Um, I always believe that in reporting, you need a certain amount of luck. Yeah. And so, you know, I approached. I probably approached like twenty, thirty students when I was in Iowa. I was running around a lot, like a headless chicken, which I always do. <laughs> um, but eventually, I found I found students who, you know, that cheated in the exams, and they were going to be expelled by the university, and they were scared. They were apologetic. They wanted to explain why they did what they did, and you know, I convinced a couple of them to talk to us so that they can put their story out there, and that was essentially what happened. So.、Uh, Did they talk on the record? I can't remember. I believe I don't remember. I think it was on background. Maybe we. I don't think we ran their names. Okay. I don't remember. And I remember the the story describing like maybe I'm misremembering, but I thought it described like posters in Chinese. Yeah, I think there was some of that. Yeah, these services. Yeah, and like here's the WeChat account. <laughs> right. Contact us, and it's just so like out there and brazen, but it's in Chinese. So I guess like. You know, whatever the administration at the university just—you know—it wasn't on their radar. Is that how you find found some of these people, or how did、uh, how did you track them down? No, I um, it was through word of mouth. It was by talking to many, many Chinese students. Would you just walk around and be like,、oh, "That might be"? A I、Chinese、went to、speaker. yeah. There was an embarrassing amount of racial profiling. <laughs>、uh, it was just shameless racial profiling. It was a summer break. I remembered. I think that was why the assignment sounded really daunting before I left because I was like,、yeah. "There are hardly any students in school. It's a summer break, and I'm supposed to find students and you know get them to talk to me." But the, but then you know in the end it kind of worked out because those who got in trouble with the school didn't go on vacation. They stayed、uh, in school to try、okay. to sort it out. And there were not—I mean, the Chinese population was a minority, but there was still quite a few of them.、Mm-hmm. So I went to the places where students hung out. You know, if they stayed on in school during summertime, so I did see a fan of those students. But it was—it was basically by like through word of mouth that I got to know the students who cheated because I—I spoke to many many students before I found them. So.、Uh-huh. And. What was it like talking to them? Out of curiosity, did you,、uh, you know, do that? You think they're scumbags? Do you think they they were just misguided? Do you, I'm just curious. Like, you no, know, we talk to were... people who aren't who do bad shit all the time, so、right. I guess it's not that outlandish. But I mean, I think they were, you know, they, they were they were essentially kids, right? They okay,、uh-huh. not kids. They were young adults. Uh, some of them were like not even twenty. Some of them were just past twenty. They were trying to adapt. To a new environment, I'm not justifying what they did, but I think some of them were apologetic, some were not. But I think for most of them, they had challenges adjusting to an English-speaking environment and living in the U.S. on their own for the first time.、Mm-hmm. Many of these students come from wealthy families, so they had a lot of money on hand to buy their way out of problems, and that was. In some ways, what they did, they weren't excelling in their studies. They weren't performing in their exams in the way they w- wished they did. So they just hired someone to do it for them.、Mm-hmm. Were the people they were hiring Chinese as well, or yes, I, I believe so. Okay, interesting. I mean, in the end, you know, the, like I said, my contribution was was not significant. Like I helped in one story. I think 
they had an entire series of stories on on this subject. They probably did eight or nine stories. I helped with one, and it turned out to be you know a series that was successful by some measure because it was a finalist in the Pulitzer right prizes for like I think the following year. So yeah, so congrats to the team, but. Yeah, no, it was a big deal. I remember at the time. I mean, it's still a big deal getting nominated for a Pulitzer. Let's see. Oh, I guess the other story I'm thinking about is just the JD story. I, I, the, on this, um, there's another story you want to talk about. I thought I would ask about that one. The, Wait, which one is that? The JD story. Right. So how how did that how did that one go about? I mean, obviously he gets arrested. It gets in the news that way. I mean, it's a breaking story. But yeah. So just for people who don't know JD, JD is like a big e-commerce retailer in China, and in I think October last year. The founder and chairman, and I think maybe even CEO, was arrested when he was in Minneapolis for a few days because he was accused of raping a Chinese undergraduate who was studying at the University of Minnesota. So, so were you on it from the start, or was it more once they were like, "We need to send somebody there, ideally somebody who can speak Chinese"? Did they give you more than a day's notice this time? <laughs> no, they gave me like four hours' notice, <laughs> like literally. How did you feel compared to like the Iowa one? Did you were you like I got this, or were you also like I don't I don't go into any assignment thinking I got it right? Um, No, why why would you? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I would be freaking out like if I was being sent to a city I'd never been before. You know? Yeah. um, I uh, so the story broke as in well as the news came out that you know this Chinese billionaire was arrested. All the media outlets, you know, the the standard story of oh you know billionaire arrested in in Minnesota sort of for this and that then you know so in the aftermath the editors were thinking all right so this is clearly a story that a lot of people are interested in or you know in industry speak there is a lot of eyeballs there are many eyeballs on this story what should we write next and how do we get to those kind of stories that we want and at some point they were they thought all right maybe we should send someone down there and yes maybe we should have a chinese speaker so you know i my name came up your red just like randomly your desk rang it was like random i think it was like random thought from like some editor and you're like all right why don't we send her and so you know and so i went and it started out as you know i'll be there for a couple of days i'll try to figure out like what happened like get some color on what happened see what we find Uh ended up being there for 12 days kept extending the trip (laughs) at at, like you know find like towards the end of the trip i think i I really wanted to come home because i was just tired Sure. But yeah, I mean, we, you know, it was a good exercise. And I was working with like, you know, a very good colleague, my cubicle neighbor, and he helped a lot. And so together we, we put out a decent story on, on what happened in the hours before and after the alleged rape, just to give the whole incident a bit more context. Sure. Yeah. And I had a very good editor who understands how to strategize when it comes to reporting. Sure. Which I think a lot of editors overlook. So. Yeah, they're focused on the copy, the the final product. Okay, so you stayed 12 days. You talked to police. You went to like several of the key sites, like a restaurant and stuff like that, right? I think you looked at like security footage and you got that, right? Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. I, I'm trying to remember all the parts of the story. Yeah. So I can't say who I talked to, right? For, oh, for you're obvious right. reasons. Yeah, yeah. But I would say that, yeah, we tried to talk to as many people who were related to the situation as we could. And ultimately, that was what gave us the confidence to put out the stories that we wrote because it was by no means one sided. Sure. So, you know, and I think that's the true like, with most stories that Reuters does is, for example, if you're writing about a crime story, you don't just write from the defendant's point of view or from the plaintiff or the prosecutor's point of view. You go mm-hmm. on both sides and we definitely try to do that in that story. So, yeah, and it, it's cool that you had an editor that kept extending. I guess you, you get stuff, and if it's promising, you'll get more stuff that usually right yeah i mean look i i i was there for 12 days there were days that were very very long and even my editor said at one point that i sounded i started to sound really tired but you know i wasn't there were days when i didn't get any meaningful information Mm-hmm. You know, on a, a recent assignment that I had where I went to another country, which, which I shall not name, <laughs> <laughs> I was there for a total of 17 days and I didn't make, I didn't gain any momentum in my reporting Ooh. until the seventh or the eighth day. And it oh, wasn't wow. because I wasn't walking. I was walking, you know, 14, 15, 16 hour days. I was slowly breaking into the circle that I had to get into. So, you know, sometimes reporting takes time and it really does take investment. Do you want to stop for a second? No, I'm just getting like messages from my colleagues about a story that we're working on. So, okay, that's fine. On a Sunday, never off. Yeah, because when when you work with colleagues in different time zones and they're oh, going away okay. on vacations and there are things that you need to do, right? You need to work after office hours. I was going to say twelve days, seventeen days. The longest I've been on assignment is like a week. And I would say you, when you're on any sort of assignment trip, I mean, you don't want to fuck it up. You just like I also you work so much all the time. And I remember we're mentioning Kazu a lot, but he basically I remember him telling me like, yeah. Traveling sounds fun and glamorous, but you'll work harder than you ever work on these trips. Yes. And I feel like when I come back from something like that, I'm very likely to be sick. Um, it's I've never done 12, 17 days. I feel like it would kill me. I don't know. I, I mean, I've, I guess I've been, we've been lucky in that we have editors at Reuters who support us when we do these things. Uh-huh. So they, you know, they didn't give me a hard time for being away for so long. You know, I'm glad that at the end of these trips, I managed to find information that was interesting enough for a story but i was going to say after the 17 day trip that i had i came home i worked for a couple more days then i got sick Mm -hmm. and i think i was off work for maybe three days and in those three days i think i slept 18 hours each wow i was just wiped out yeah yeah crazy i just thought of a funny like so when I was in Minneapolis for 12 days, the hotel I was staying at had a Starbucks mm-hmm. on, in the lobby. And I was there for so long that they recognized me. And at <laughs> some point, they were like, why are you still here? And then eventually, they felt sorry for me and started giving me free fruit and like free that's milk. Funny. You know, was, like I guess that's what they need, like Minnesota, Minnesota nice. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, that's cool. Did you eat a lot of cheese and whatnot? I did not. And I was so... Like, I was so busy reporting, I didn't even realize that Minnesota is, like, the city of lakes. Yeah. Because I did not see a single lake. (laughs) Yeah. Please tell me you didn't eat, like, Subway or something like that. I did not eat Subway. If you remember my love for Subway, I have not had Subway in years. (laughs) Not since that basement. Subway, yeah. Subway at the Beijing office. Um, So, the the final section, you've listened to the, the 
half of a podcast episode, right? So you haven't the listened. first half, yeah. Okay, so at the end of it is always the lightning round, which is very cheesy. <laughs> I realize to call it that, but I don't have a better name for it. Okay, and, you know, it's it's less involved. It's you know more brief stuff. Stuff I mentioned at brunch. Yeah, stuff he told me like twenty minutes before the, <laughs> the recording. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. So, do you feel ready? As ready as I'll ever be, <laughs> which is not ready. Okay, first question. Yeah. What is usually the first thing you check when you wake up in the morning and you grab your phone or your computer? Emails. Okay. What is a must-read publication that you look at almost every day that's not Reuters? I read all the, I, I, I skim all the major newspapers, so the Journal, the Times, the FT. Sure. What is a publication you read, listen to, watch purely for fun? For fun? Something that's not related to work. That's not, well, something that, I, a publication? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, books. I read books that are not related to work, but, you know, I don't, it's not like I subscribe to any magazine. This is your Sarah Palin moment. I read books. Um. I'm trying to think, like, how I can answer this in a sensible way. What is, what? What's a publication? That I read that's not related to work? Yeah, that you read just because you enjoy reading it. Well, I'm reading a tome about Stalin right now. (laughs) So, does that count? Very, Very light reading. Yeah, just like I read random stuff. Okay. I'll accept tome about Stalin. <laughs> What's right, it tome called? about, yeah. It's literally there. It's literally called Stalin. <laughs> <laughs> it's like one of two volumes. Oh, wow. <laughs> it's like a 500 page. Well, that's definitely, you know, a departure from what we do. <laughs> so yes. Get your mind off things. But you don't read, like, is there any specific topic or subject you're really interested in that you spend time reading about outside of work that isn't related? Yeah, I mean, I, I like reading about history. I've recently taken an interest in really getting to know, like, more like China's rising military, uh, trying to understand what they're doing. It's not really related to my work. I'm just interested. Cool. What is the best article or other Oof, I forgot about piece of media you've consumed recently that can't be from Reuters? Well, I guess I enjoyed the Times story about Trump's taxes. Okay. By David Bostow and team. That was the one where they got his older tax records, right? Yes. Okay. Is Twitter important to you? Maybe it should be, but I don't use it often, and I get a lot of flack from my colleagues (laughs) for having a dead Twitter account. Because I don't think I've ever seen you tweet. You must have an account, and you just look at it. You don't send, send out tweets. No. Have you ever sent out a tweet? No. That's so funny. I might retweet someone's stuff, but yeah. Okay. What other social media do you use, if any, and how? I actually, I don't do much social media. And I guess this is my shortcoming, but I just find I'm so busy trying to do reporting. I I don't even have enough time in a work day to finish the work. Right. You know, the more traditional form of work and like doing source building, writing stories, talking to colleagues who are working on stories with me, you know, working with multimedia, working with... uh, photographers, blah, blah, blah. I don't use any social media. Well, okay, I do use LinkedIn, but that's because it's part of source building. But yeah. That makes sense. Do you even like have a Facebook? I have a dormant Facebook account for professional reasons when I try to message people on Facebook. Gotcha. So you're really out of it. Why, when you're so busy, come home and do such a heavy activity as go on Facebook when you could open a light read about Stalin? Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) The next couple are yes or no questions. Yep. You can take them as you will. Glenn Greenwald, yes or no? Yes, I think mostly yes. Mostly yes? Yeah. Vice Media, yes or no? I don't know it well enough. I don't read it often enough to go either way. WikiLeaks, yes or no? Can we opine on this? I guess that's a good question. If you don't want to... 
Yeah, maybe I should pause because I never know what what I'm working on next. <laughs> That's true. That's true. I mean, we would prefer if they would just leak to us instead of WikiLeaks. <laughs> um, I yeah, I don't know. I mean, you know, as you know, Reuters is very careful about what we print, right? And right. There are always legal, ethical implications in every story that we write, and we have to weigh all of those carefully before we decide what we do. So. Right. If you had to trade places with one journalist, living or dead, and you would have their career, who would it be? Right. So I, we, yeah, I thought about this, and, and I was going to say it's, it will be John Hersey who wrote Hiroshima because I, I did read Hiroshima, and it was hair raising. Uh huh. Yeah. He went to Hiroshima. He right went to Hiroshima. Yeah, right the after the new, yeah atomic bomb went off, and he wrote about how people's clothes melt off their backs. And it was, I think, I actually have the book somewhere. You. Fairly grim taste, I will say. <laughs> but yeah, no, I've, I I should read it. I can even like picture the cover of the book. Like I know I've looked at it before. No, I, I don't just... think it actually has. Well, the book that I have doesn't have a picture. Or it's just, you know, it's just a plain cover with the words Hiroshima because I guess that says it all. Oh, yeah. The contents of the book are heavy enough that you, you don't need any pictures to dramatize it. That's true. But anyway, I should read it. And if you could travel back in time and give your younger self a piece of advice, what would it be? Do not study journalism. <laughs> Absolutely. Not that you can't be a journalist, but you don't need to study journalism to be a journalist. Sure, sure. But who knows? I mean, do you think you would be a journalist if you hadn't studied it? I don't know, but I, I would still not recommend studying journalism. <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> what is your favorite film, book, TV, or other media about journalists? Scoop. By Evelyn Wall. When did that come out? I don't know, actually. Maybe in the early 19... I, I have no idea. Okay, because I've, I've only heard of it since I started doing the podcast. So my favorite detail in the book is about how this guy... So it all revolves around this character. And I think he used to be a journalist in like a gardening publication. And he moved on to reporting like other types of stories. <laughs> and on one occasion, he gets sent on an assignment. And, you know, he starts racking up crazy expenses and he's spending like a drunken sailor <laughs> and at one point he files expenses for like a pile of rocks <sighs> it was published in 1938 it's hilarious oh it's, it's that old yeah it's it's one of my favorite oh, yeah it's okay. probably one of my favorite books huh. an ex-colleague gave it to me when i took on my first assignment of Reuters. like when i moved to australia he gave it to me as a parting gift and i read it when i was in sydney i remember i just got to sydney i didn't know anyone and you know i was spending a lot of time by myself so i read the book and i was just laughing i, I was sitting in a park and i was just like reading and laughing to myself it was hilarious <laughs> i'll have to check it out qualifications aside if you couldn't be a journalist, what job would you do? Oh, I would love to be an architect if I could draw. <laughs> do you think you get that from your dad at all? I guess he wasn't an architect. Yeah, but my dad actually liked drawing. No, I don't know where I got that from. It's funny, I never realized that there's a certain prestige attached to architects, especially uh -huh. here in the U.S. So sure. someone pointed that out, an architect pointed that out to me. He said that was the cultural context for the joke in Seinfeld where George Costanza always wants to pretend to be an architect. <laughs> I guess I never paid that <laughs> close of attention to that joke. So I, I, I wasn't aware of all of that. I love architecture and I, lo I would love to be an architect if I can draw because I think buildings and the way you design them, if they're done thoughtfully, can really improve quality of life. Sure. Have you ever read that Anne Rand book about the 
architect? No. Is it the Fountainhead or something like that? Right. Fountainhead. It really glamorizes it. I, oh, really? I, w- I would say it's not a great book. It's one of the few books that I read 95% of it and just got so angry at the plot. I like would refuse to finish it. But yeah, no, that's cool. Architect. Good answer. Wait, so, what will you be if you're not a journalist? Oh, that is a very good question. I need to think of answers to my own questions. You're the yeah, first exactly. person this to is, actually this is bullshit. call me out on it. Yeah. <laughs> what would I do? I'd, I'd like, I'd be in law enforcement, I think. You mean like a policeman or like... Yeah. Really? Yeah. I mean, qualifications aside, I am not qualified for that, I don't think. Why Why aren't you qualified? Uh, I don't think I could beat up a bad guy. Like, I don't think I could run and tackle somebody. <laughs> like, I don't think I could do basic things police need to be able to do. Like, right. would I be able to wrestle somebody down and put handcuffs on them? No. <laughs> And I'm probably too non-confrontational for that. Anyway, <laughs> how, how do you feel about the podcast? Are you satisfied? Are I think you... you should definitely shorten it. <laughs> <laughs> Is there anything else we should have touched on? No. I actually think that like 30, 20 to 30 minutes would be plenty. <laughs> no, I'm serious. Just Especially for you like... or in general. I mean, people always tell me it should be shorter. I realize that. Yeah. I don't think we were funny or like we went into like any interesting stories. Oh, was... So I think we should, Yeah. I mean, do you for have me at least, I would say. Interesting stories I mean, or I don't anecdotes. Know. You can't, do you have a joke bottle? You can't do this like inorganically. No, I don't have any. I'm not thinking about any off the top of my head. I'm just saying. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, there's plenty for a 20 or 30 minute. Okay. For mine, at least, I think you should edit it. <laughs> it's, it's the same with my stories. I always feel like less is more. You know? Oh, really? I, You're um, the only journalist who's ever said like. Yeah. Don't. I mean, I unless it's a story that makes me fall off my chair, I don't want to read 3,000 words on it. And if I get through 3,000 words on a subject, Jack, I'm really hoping there's some kind of smoking gun. Uh-huh. Yeah. Not really hoping. I That's why I'm reading, because I think there is a smoking gun. But oftentimes, you do get three... And I'm look, I'm guilty of it, right? And I have put out stories that were way too long for their own good. Uh-huh. But I can be really heartless when it comes to cutting my stuff. I just... I'm, like, chopping away. That's a good skill uh, And I will say, after working at Reuters, like, now, if I do pick up a story, I th- think the vast majority of stories out there in the world are way too long. Like, yeah. I don't know. I think when I was, like, a bushy-tailed college student, I would, like, read all the way through to the end of, like, almost every story. But who has time for that? No, I do. I do read some stories, like, yeah. all, like from top to bottom, but... Yeah, no, I mean, if it's a good story, certainly. Okay, well, I think that's all. So, cool, thank uh, you. I'll hit stop and pray nothing goes wrong. <laughs> That's our show. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Kogwe Ching of Reuters. I'll post links to some of the things we talked about in the podcast description and also on our show page, foreignpod.podbean.com. If you like the show, please subscribe to it in Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts and leave a five-star review. Beyond that, it would be a huge help if you could also write a positive review. It helps get the podcast more attention in Apple Podcasts and other apps. You can find us on Twitter at, at @foreignpod or tweet about us with the hashtag hashtag #foreignpod. And above all, if you know someone who might like the podcast, please recommend it to them. Our show's music is a track called Love Chances by Makai Beats. There's more information about that in the podcast description and on our show page. Please look for the next episode to be posted on Sunday, August 25th. Until then, I'm Jake Spring, and this is Foreign Correspondence. should definitely shorten this like oh no my, i, I my, my segment no no yes. this is good this has been very tight compared to like the ones i've been doing i feel here you're good at you're not being over 
I, I don't know where I'm going with this. I'm very hungover. So okay. <laughs> so, uh, 